A quick warning, there are curse words that are unbeeped in today's episode of the show. If you prefer a beeped version, you can find that at our website, thisamericanlife.org. Okay, so before the president got coronavirus, which is sending everything now into some new and unforeseen reality, there were certain things about the election that had settled into predictable rhythms, right? The president would talk about rioters in the streets and law and order. Joe Biden would talk about Donald Trump's character and the way he's done his job. And when it came to the actual process of voting and the mail-in ballots that are going to be used by record numbers of people this year, the talking points lined up like this. The president said that mail-in ballots were going to be a disaster. Joe Biden said they were a perfectly good way to vote. The experts said the evidence backed up Biden. Then the president would again insist that they are a disaster. Biden would again say no. The experts would again back him up. The president again would call them a disaster, around and around and around, in a circle that never ended, a very tedious circle. But, you know, we can remove ourselves from that circle, right? For a little perspective. Good evening, town of Nokomis. For a few weeks now, one of our producers, Ben Calhoun, has been calling around to the people who actually handle these ballots that everybody has been yelling about. These people touch them with their hands. They stack them in stacks. Ben? Um, Yeah, so the person you're hearing, this is uh, Wendy Smith. She's the person who's responsible for running the election and dealing with mail-in ballots and all that in a small town in my home state, which is uh, Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. She's in Nokomis, which is way up north. And I called Wendy because I was wondering how this bizarre year was going for clerks like her. Um, I I had seen Wendy in a newspaper story. She had tattoos on both arms and this T-shirt that said, why should only one hour be happy? And it said that she rode motorcycles. And I just kind of thought I wanted to talk to her. Um, When I originally reached out to her, she was busy sending out absentee ballots to people who'd requested them. You don't mind if I, like, work and talk at the same time, do you? No, no. I actually imagine that you have a lot to do right now. Yeah, I came into 29 absentee ballots in, and I've got a stack more that have to go. Oh, wait. So how how many total are you looking at compared to, like, a normal year? Oh, my gosh. My last presidential, I had 100 absentee voters four total. years ago. Total. I've already almost tripled for this election what I did four years ago. Tripled. So that's like 300 voters out of maybe 1,000 that she's responsible for. Wow. And she's getting more requests every week. I've talked to Wendy a couple times now, actually, um, and both times she has worked the entire time that we've been talking. You can hear her keyboard and her printer going in the background, like, the whole time. As I've been talking to you, I'm printing off all my absentee ballot requests because I have to have them open and done and in the mail today. Wendy told me in all her years as clerk, this is definitely the most work she's ever had to do for elections. And one of the reasons for that is that the legislature and the governor keep fighting over how everything should run. There are also lawsuits in Wisconsin, like there are all over the country, about what the rules for the election should be. And all the little changes that come out of that stuff can be a ton of extra work for Wendy. Like in Wisconsin, at one point, they changed the rule about how many days somebody has to be a resident in order to vote. So Wendy started scrambling to fix all that. She's like redoing all these envelopes. And then they just changed the rule back, meaning that all of that scrambling and work was for nothing. So then you went back to trusting your envelopes. So all the envelopes that I traced, you're laughing, but try being a one-man show doing this. No, I'm just so sorry. Like, I imagine you, like, I I just had an image of you buying Pepto-Bismol at Costco by the case or something. Yeah. 
And compared to a normal year, like uh-huh. how many more times work do you feel like you're doing this year on elections? Job. It's a full-time job. Is this your only job? No. This is my part-time job. <laughs> <laughs> what what is your what do you do when you're not doing this? I work for an insurance company. I'm still working plus putting overtime in there plus working here. Oh my gosh. Which is fine. When do you when do you sleep? Uh... <laughs> okay, so she's got rule changes. She's got tons of extra ballots she's got to keep track of. Mm-hmm. And the other big thing that's taking up a bunch more time is helping voters. Because people will just, like, fill things out wrong or they don't know where their ballot is. Um, like, I talked to her the other day, and she was telling me about this couple. I got to try to locate their number. They're snowbirds. Um, their ballot went down to Florida. They're not there yet. Um, the ballot came back, and now I got to try to find a way to reach them. Oh, wow. Right. So I get to dig through about 300 ap- applications to try to find their, if, see if they have a phone number. So when he was trying to find them, uh, which it seems like something she kind of does a lot. Like, she digs up numbers for people. She finds people on Facebook. So now, I mean, I know where they live. I can probably drive over there when I'm done with work and say, hey, (laughs) what do you want to do? The clerks that I've been talking to, they all kind of talk like this. Like, they have this down-to-earth sort of civic-mindedness. Yeah. Like, there's this other clerk, Marilyn Pedretti. She's in this town called Holland, which is slightly bigger than Nokomis. It's like 4,300 people. Um, And Marilyn Pedretti spent five years in D.C., where she worked for a congressman, and then she worked in the Senate. But she got sick of Washington, and so she spent the last 20 years as the town clerk for Holland. I want votes to count. I will not disenfranchise somebody and be lazy. I will do everything I can. I try to find their phone number first. If I can't find that, I try to email. If I don't have that, I'll send them a letter. Um, So, yeah, we're, we're, we're doing everything we can to make sure those votes count. The, the one thing I find very frustrating um, is the, the, the conspiracy theories that are out there. And people believe, I'm like, hello, I'm your town clerk. I am not going to throw your ballot away. And you can track it. There's no way I can throw your ballot away. You know, so when you hear these stories about somebody picked some ballots out of a garbage and they opened them up, it's like, number one, whoever opened them up should be put in jail because you cannot open up a ballot. You know, if it's sealed, you have to leave it sealed until Election Day. So, And we have 1,800 municipalities in the state of Wisconsin. It's not centralized. You would, it would take 1,800 clerks to do the wrong thing. Are there <laughs> clerks out there that make mistakes? You bet. But when people come in with these conspiracies that, that the whole system's rigged, I'm like, no, no, it's not. All the clerks that I talk to, and this is in like Republican areas and Democratic areas, they all seem like this was sort of driving them a little nuts. People getting the idea that what they do is very loosey-goosey and that people are just going to cheat the system. Um, To them, that's just outlandish because they say that there's too much security built into everything. Security like what? Well, they keep track of every request for a ballot. Uh, Unless you can't leave the house, you have to submit your ID to get an absentee ballot. Clerks put tracking info on the ballots, and then they keep track of them when they're sent out and then coming back. 
And then like when it comes back in, it has to have a voter signature and a witness signature for verification. Um, at the end of the whole election, they also have to like report back to the state what ballots ended up where, like which ones went out and came back and which ones, you know, went out and never came back. Um, say somebody moves uh, and they ask for a ballot in a new location. That's also something the state tracks. And I just want to say, like, Wisconsin is pretty typical for like how all this stuff works. I feel like all these details exist in this universe that doesn't overlap in any way with the discussion that I see in the national media and the arguments that I heard during the presidential debate. It just seems kind of sad that that universe, the national politics universe, is lobbing grenades into these women's universe. Yeah, no, I mean, I've been at this for a couple of weeks and I haven't found one clerk that is worried about fraud. Um all of them are worried about like the rule changes and the number of extra mail-in ballots. Um, I mean, they think they can deal with that. It's just a lot more work. But they're running into these conspiracy theories a lot. Locally. Yeah, no. Yeah, yeah. No, that's what I'm hearing. Um, Marilyn, she's like Wendy. She's a clerk part-time. Uh, and she also gardens two acres and she sells vegetables on the side of the highway. I mean, I have a roadside stand, and I'm out there, and people know who I am, and they'll talk to me about election stuff, which is fun. Um, but this woman who's out there buying my vegetables and knows that I'm the town clerk is telling me that all these dead people are voting. And it's like, um, no, it's pretty much impossible in the state of Wisconsin for a dead person to vote. If they had died the day before election, maybe I'll, I'll not catch that, and maybe that ballot will go through. But that's one vote. It's not like the whole cemetery is voting, you know? So... And I just looked at her and said, huh, you know I'm the clerk, right? Yeah, yeah. Do you think I would let dead people vote? Well, no, not you, but somewhere else. I said, can't happen in the state of Wisconsin. Well, um, it, it, um, it happens in other states. <laughs> no, it doesn't. Stop, stop listening to that stuff, you know? And I do it cheerfully. I, I don't, you know, yell or anything. I'm just like, it's just, it's just wrong, and you got to stop listening to that stuff, you know? Well, Ben Calhoun, thanks very much. Oh, sure. You going to stay in touch with these clerks as everything heats up in the next couple weeks? I mean, as long as they'll answer my calls. There are so many jobs like this around the country. Some of them are part-time, like with these two women. Some of them are full-time. Some are paid jobs. Lots of volunteer or people get some tiny stipend. These are people who are throwing themselves into the details of some task that just needs to get done for our country to function and doing it in the normal, decent, civic-minded way that you would imagine and that you would hope for. And it's corny to say it, but we are a country blessed with armies of people who are trying to contribute to their communities in all kinds of ways. And today's program is about a group of people like that. People who are, as best as we can tell, trying to do a good job for all of us. They're trying to protect the public. But in this case, too often, they're failing. From WBEZ Chicago, to This American Life, I'm Eric Glass. Stay with us. Act one, clinical trial. So the people that um, most of today's program is about are doctors. Doctors who've agreed to sit on panels to judge other doctors, to discipline them or revoke their licenses when they've behaved badly. Every state has these medical boards. They grant medical licenses, and they're the ones responsible for taking them away. We heard about all this from a law professor at Vanderbilt, Rebecca Allensworth. In 2018, she started going to medical board hearings in Tennessee, where she lives. It was research for a book that she plans to write about licensing boards. 
And what she saw when she got there horrified her. Dana Chivas is going to take it from here. When it comes to the Tennessee Board of Medical Examiners, Rebecca is like the one diehard fan in the stands at a town softball game. She knows all the board members by name. She's interviewed most of them, attended all their meetings in person, or watched the live stream. She even went to their off-site retreat last year. Before you went to any medical board meetings, how did you imagine they would be? I thought they'd be pretty boring, but yeah. um, I think I also thought it was going to be like in some sort of grand state government building. I think I had like the our state capital in mind or something, but it's just like an office park. So yeah, so describe what it actually looked like. It's like a, you know, three or four story square office building, uh, you know, probably built in the 70s or 80s. Um this is Nashville, so there's copious parking. And it sounds like Dunder Mifflin to me. Oh, my God, it looked just like Dunder Mifflin. It looked just like <laughs> Dunder Mifflin. The first meeting she went to, an OBGYN appeared before the board to request a new medical license. The board had taken his old license away six months before when they learned that he'd had sex with 11 of his patients. He'd done drugs with at least one of them, too. He'd also prescribed them and other people who were not his patients controlled substances like codeine and Xanax. So this doctor was there to ask the medical board for a new license. All that stuff, the sex, the drugs, had happened years before. He'd been to rehab, was sober now, saw the error in his old ways. And the board gave him a new license, with some conditions attached, but he could practice medicine again. Rebecca couldn't believe it. There just has to be some sins that are unforgivable. In the eyes of the board, the board is a regulatory body. They're not, they're not your priest, you know, they're not right. deciding whether or not you've really, you're really sorry. They're deciding whether or not you're a safe provider. Officially, the board's mission is to protect the health, safety, and welfare of people in the state of Tennessee. Board members and staff repeat that mission all the time, like a mantra. But since Rebecca's been following the board, she's seen a bunch of cases like that OBGYN, where doctors have done something really bad, seemingly irredeemable, and somehow they've managed to keep their medical licenses. They're out there working as doctors in Tennessee right now. So this became the question of her research. What was going wrong in the system? Why were these doctors allowed to keep working? One case in particular became the focus of her attention because it seemed like a perfect storm of regulatory failure. And that's what I'm gonna tell you about today. It's about a doctor named Michael LaPaglia. I'll start the story back in 2013. LaPaglia was working as an ER doctor at the time. And late one night, police got a call about a domestic disturbance at his house. When the police arrived, they smelled weed and searched the house. They found, actually, let me just read from the police officer's affidavit. Quote, A search of the residence pursuant to the search warrant revealed 45 quart-sized mason jars which contained marijuana, 127 glass pipes used to smoke marijuana, Glock 19 9mm, grow light with ballast, timer, digital scale, and ledger detailing names slash amounts. Also discovered were approximately 52 diazepam, 22 amphetamine, and 24 oxycodone pills. In addition, the police found, on a shelf in LaPaglia's office, vials of fentanyl, morphine, and propofol, which is used for general anesthesia. LaPaglia's girlfriend told police that he had threatened to use that stuff to kill her. In the petition she filed for a restraining order the next day, she said, quote, 
Michael told me that if I ever contacted the police for help or reported his drug use, Michael would use his powers as a physician to have me committed to psychiatric facility. Michael stated he would make sure my body wouldn't be found. Michael stated that he would take my life away. I'm in fear for my life and my son's life. Lepaglia told police his girlfriend was delusional. He was arrested and charged with two drug felonies, intent to distribute a controlled substance and intent to distribute marijuana. He pled no contest and went to inpatient rehab. He was addicted to Valium at the time. He lost his job at the hospital. The medical board put him on probation. And he surrendered his DEA registration number, which is the thing you have to have to prescribe controlled substances. That's a big deal. It's very hard to get a job once you've lost your DEA number. No one wants to touch him. No, pre- no employer is going to take him, very few employers anyway, with a record like that. Private insurance, forget it. Hospital, forget it. Um, a few years later, he files for bankruptcy uh, because, you know, there's, there's no way to earn money back at the same clip as you are as an ER physician. But he got a job at an addiction clinic a friend of his owned. It was called EHC, Express Healthcare. Lepaglia would see patients like a regular doctor, work up a treatment plan and everything, and then another doctor would write their prescriptions. Dr. Lepaglia helped a friend of his, Dr. Charles Brooks, get a job at Express Healthcare, too. Dr. Brooks was also on probation with the medical board. He'd had sex with a patient, he says they were having an affair, and at least once given her a controlled substance, he says to calm her nerves, because they were having an affair. But unlike Dr. Lepaglia, he did not lose his DEA number. He could still prescribe. Dr. Lepaglia left EHC, and in early 2018, he and Dr. Brooks started up a little side business. So he and Dr. Brooks kind of hatched this plan. Lepaglia and Brooks realized, okay, well, here's what we're going to do. We're going to start a clinic called L&B Healthcare, Lepaglia and Brooks. But Lepaglia doesn't have a DEA number, so we'll use Brooks's. Lepaglia is going to do the work. He's going to write the prescriptions. It's his phone number on the prescription pad that they make out. But it's Brooks's DEA number. And it's Brooks's signature. Sometimes they were pre-signed. Sometimes Lepaglia forged the signature. Oh, and they sell them for $300 cash out of Lepaglia's home, at least once in a McDonald's parking lot. L&B Healthcare didn't have an actual brick-and-mortar office. Lepaglia would see people wherever it was convenient write prescriptions for controlled substances like Clonopin, Valium, and Suboxone. When the facts came out about their operation, it looked like they were selling prescriptions for cash, like drug dealers with stethoscopes. Lepaglia and Brooks say that's not the case at all, that they were legitimately treating people with addiction problems by prescribing them controlled substances. It's something called medication-assisted treatment, like the way methadone is used to treat heroin addictions. So that's what they said they were doing. Regardless, It was still illegal. A few months into the venture, the feds busted them, charged them with drug trafficking for writing prescriptions for controlled substances without the authority to do so, and fraud for using Brooks's DEA number in the scam. Brooks pled not guilty, but Dr. LaPaglia signed a plea deal with federal prosecutors. He's still waiting to be sentenced, but he could be facing prison time. So that's the federal criminal court. LaPaglia still had to face the Tennessee Medical Board. And when they found out about L&B Healthcare, they summarily suspended the doctor's medical licenses until they could hold disciplinary hearings for them. 
The case unfolded over three hearings, from March to July 2019. The first one in March was the disciplinary hearing for LaPaglia's partner, Dr. Brooks. Rebecca was there. She'd been going to medical board meetings for a year at that point. And I see this guy who um, is doing something that actually even I think the physicians on the board find really offensive, which is giving up control of your your pad. And to, to hand it over to somebody else is really seen as pretty uneth- unethical. Um, most doctors don't view their pad as, as a moneymaker. These medical board disciplinary hearings are technically administrative courts. They run kind of like the criminal and civil court systems. But the question they're addressing is more pointed. It's whether a doctor should be allowed to continue to practice medicine. Dr. LaPaglia agreed to testify against Dr. Brooks in front of the medical board. The signature on that prescription says Charles Brooks, correct? Correct. Is that your signature, though? That's my writing, yes. Just to set the stage, the guy asking the questions is Andrew Kaufman. He's the prosecuting attorney. He works for the Tennessee Department of Health. Dr. LaPaglia is the one answering his questions. While you were partners with Dr. Brooks, to your knowledge, was he aware that you were signing his name to blank prescriptions? Yes. What makes you think that he was aware? Because sometimes I would run out of pre-signed prescriptions and had to do what I had to do to take care of the patient. And we've discussed it. When you went to work for, with Dr. Brooks, did you believe that what you were doing was against the law? No. Dr. LePaglia was like, yeah, I think we probably cut some corners. I think, you know, mistakes were made. No, we discussed it, and we knew that what we were doing wasn't ideal uh, because we had very little resources to get started, but we never imagined that we were breaking the law. His general attitude was like, error in judgment, you know, not a big deal. Has your opinion changed about whether you were breaking the law? Yes. Why? Because federal prosecutors have convinced me otherwise. I spoke with Dr. LaPaglia. He didn't want me to record our conversation, and we didn't talk for long before he got off the phone. But he reiterated to me that he and Dr. Brooks didn't think they were doing anything wrong. When they worked in addiction clinics, the doctors there would hand prescriptions to receptionists, and the receptionists would call them into a pharmacy. It happened all the time. He told me, quote, We did not see any difference between him giving me verbal authorization to call them in and verbal authorization to write a prescription. I still don't see a difference. And if someone had a problem with that, the federal government had a problem with that, they could have just told us to stop. They didn't have to indict us and charge us with two felonies. I reached out to Dr. LaPaglia several times after that initial call, but he declined my request to talk further. There were three board members hearing Dr. Brooks's case that day, and they were not swayed by this defense that they didn't know they were doing anything wrong that they were just trying to help their drug-sick patients. In fact, the board members suspected that LMB Healthcare was not a legitimate business at all. Here's Dr. Charles Handorf, one of the board members, questioning Dr. LaPaglia. Did the clinic ever apply for or receive a business license? No. 
did the clinic ever apply for or, or register an Articles of Incorporation with the Secretary of State no. of Tennessee? Has the clinic ever filed tax returns? Um, not to date, no. Okay. So <coughs> sitting here, it sounds like this isn't a business at all. So that was Dr. LaPaglia testifying at Dr. Brooks's disciplinary hearing in front of the medical board. Once Brooks's case was adjudicated, it was LaPaglia's turn for discipline. He and his attorney had worked out a deal with Andrew Kaufman, the Department of Health attorney. It's called the consent order. It's basically the board's version of a plea deal. So at the next board meeting in May, Kaufman presented this deal to the board members. The board had to decide whether to accept it. Good morning, Andrew Kaufman with the Office of General Counsel. And here's what the deal was. Basically, LaPaglia could go back to practicing medicine in another month, but he'd be on probation for five years, and he'd have to be monitored by a physician's addiction group. And he'd be banned from prescribing controlled substances for two years. It's similar to what Dr. Brooks got in March, but slightly less, because LaPaglia had admitted guilt and had testified against Brooks. It's what they call a downward departure in the criminal system. Cooperating witnesses often get lighter sentences. It's supposed to give people an incentive to tell the truth. But the board was not having it with this deal. They looked at LaPaglia and saw a guy whose medical license was already on probation when he used another doctor's prescription pad to write controlled substance prescriptions. Here's Dr. John Hale, one of the board members. This, this seems rather light. I mean, we just had a, a physician whose prescriptions were stolen, and his fines were significantly more than that. I, I, I can't in good conscience uh, approve this. I'm sorry. The board has 12 members appointed by the governor, and three of them are not doctors. They're called consumer members. In this case, a real estate agent, an academic advisor, and a political fundraiser. They were even more pissed than the doctors on the board. This man doesn't need to be on the streets or in his office writing prescriptions in the state of Tennessee, as far as I'm concerned. And we're charged with the responsibility of protecting the citizens of Tennessee, so that's my concern. So how do we get to that point? Well, well, it, you can. Re- the only thing you can do today is reject this order. Thank you, Counselor. That's all. Miss Cole, I would really appreciate your insight too, as a consumer member. I share um, their feelings completely. I live in Knoxville. I know this McDonald's. I, you know, to think that he could be back there ever is scary to me as a consumer member. And for as I have young daughters and you know this man is not safe to be out in the public i don't think mr just the tour guide's representation here this mcdonald's is two blocks away from one of the major high schools in knoxville so again i agree with her this man does not need to be on the streets with this type of ability all in favor of denying the motion for this order on uh lapaglia say aye aye the board rejected the plea deal. It was unanimous. So now, Dr. LaPaglia's case will go to trial, or the medical board version of a trial, a contested case hearing, where he has the possibility of getting a much heavier discipline. They could suspend his license for even longer, for instance, or even revoke it altogether. I had been following this case, and so, yeah, I wanted a full hearing. I wanted the opportunity to see Dr. LaPaglia testify and to maybe try to talk to him, and I figured... 
Everything was lining up for them to finally throw the book at somebody. Rebecca had been to several of these disciplinary hearings by then. She'd seen so many doctors get away with what she considered to be light punishments. But it seemed like the board was finally going to put its foot down with LaPaglia. Dana Chivas. Coming up, what goes wrong when the board gets a chance to finally put its foot down? That's in a minute from Chicago Public Radio when our program continues. This American Life from Ira Glass. Today's program, trust me, I'm a doctor. We have stories about people trying to do civic-minded things for their own communities and, in the case of medical boards, sometimes failing to accomplish that job the way that lots of us would want them to. Right now we are in the middle of Dana Chivas's story and we pick up where we left off. The medical board in Tennessee has rejected Dr. Lopaglia's plea deal. And two months after that, at their next meeting, the board holds a hearing for his case. Here's Dana. How these hearings work, they're basically mini-trials. Each case gets assigned to a panel of three board members. LaPaglia's panel was made up of two doctors and a consumer member. They sit at the front of the room, facing everyone else. Yes, sir. And they're going to decide if the prosecutor has proven his case, and if so, how to discipline Dr. LaPaglia. There's also an administrative law judge, who acts as a referee more than anything else. Today, the board will be considering the case of the Tennessee Department of Health versus Michael LaPaglia. They hold Dr. LaPaglia's hearing in the iris room, a name which defies the interior decorator's vision. Beige carpet, beige walls, fluorescent lights. Dr. LaPaglia is sitting at a table with his attorney, facing the panel. The prosecutor, Andrew Kaufman, he's sitting at a table to the right. And Rebecca's there, too, in the front row. It was really weird. It was weird from the first moment when they did opening statements. Good morning. I'm Andrew Kaufman. Do you uh, heard me introduce myself earlier? The prosecutor went first, Mr. Kaufman, and he said, We're going to hear a lot of facts today, good, bad, and ugly. You know, this now, is a rare case where we basically agree with defense counsel on everything. And in an unusual twist, there's not much dispute between the parties about what those facts are, whether they're good, bad, or ugly. It was just kind of a half-hearted prosecution. I mean, okay, it's an administrative hearing. It's a little more casual than a criminal trial or something. But it's meant to be adversarial. Now, I think that the evidence is going to show that Dr. Opaglia believed that he was providing good treatment to people that actually had a need for that treatment. Kaufman is there to prosecute Lepaglia, but it seems like he's going pretty easy on him. Like that 2013 drug bust, the one where the cops found Valium, oxycodone, amphetamines, marijuana, a gun, a scale, a ledger, paralytic agents, and other sedatives. Kaufman doesn't say the charge was possession with intent to deliver. He just says Lepaglia pled to some charges that related to his own personal use of controlled substances outside the bounds of the law. And the very next month... If I were prosecuting, I would probably use some stronger language. LaPaglia is coming across as a guy who once struggled with a substance use disorder, but got help, sobered up, and then, in the course of trying to help other people who suffer from drug addictions, unwittingly bumbled his way into this next bit of trouble with Dr. Brooks. Here's how LaPaglia's defense attorney also described him in his opening statement. He may be dumb, but he's a good doctor. He's He's responsible. He's done a lot to help the community. It's like everyone in this trial was on Dr. Lupaglia's side. I asked Andrew Kaufman why he handled the case the way he did. He said basically, 
this case wasn't contentious by its very nature. His job was to prove that Dr. Lepaglia had written prescriptions for controlled substances using another doctor's prescription pad. His star witness? Dr. Lepaglia, who had admitted repeatedly that, yes, he had used Dr. Brooks's pad to write prescriptions for controlled substances. But also, there's another reason why the prosecution was maybe a bit anemic in this case. The Department of Health attorneys, Kaufman and his colleagues, were feeling frustrated. When this whole thing started back in March at Dr. Brooks's hearing, Dr. Brooks, Lepaglia's co-conspirator, Kaufman had asked the board to revoke Dr. Brooks's license. But the board rejected that, said it was too harsh. So the prosecutors went easier on Lepaglia in his plea deal. And then the board rejected that, said it went too easy on him. There was no consistency to their logic. Kaufman's boss said later at a board retreat where they discussed this case that they felt a little bit knocked down by the whole thing. So at Lepaglia's hearing, Kaufman just presented the straight facts of the case and told the panel what their options were for disciplining him. Didn't suggest a punishment. They didn't know what the hell the board wanted, so they didn't try to guess. And this brings us to the single biggest problem Rebecca sees in the system, the doctors who sit on these medical boards. It's a distinguished position to be on the Tennessee Board of Medical Examiners. They have to be appointed by the governor. There's a full-time staff that supports the board, attorneys, administrators, medical consultants, and they sit in judgment of doctors. But as far as judges go, they're amateurs. Most of them are doctors. They have lots of training in medicine and very little training in administrative law. The deciders in Dr. LaPaglia's case, the three board members on his panel, were Julianne Cole, she's a consumer member, Dr. Phyllis Miller, an OBGYN, and Dr. Stephen Lloyd. Dr. Lloyd was the newest member of the board. He'd never done any of this before. In fact, this was his second day on the job. I hadn't even had orientation. I mean, I, I walked in there. I'd never been to a board meeting. I read all the rulings. When they were like, we're going to split off into panels for the, for the contested case hearings now, did you have any sense of what that meant or what it would look like? Yeah. None. So what did so, you do? Did somebody you, tell you, like, you go into this room with these people? <laughs> what did I do? Yeah. I shit a sideways brick is what I did. <laughs> I mean, I had no, I had no idea. You know, <laughs> I, it's, it's just a very confusing scene the, the first time you're in because I just, I just didn't understand the decorum. I didn't understand how this proceeded. I mean, I had, you know, I'm sitting in there and, and when the guy who came in who looked like a judge, and talk like a judge, but what does this look like? Is this real court? Am I the jury? And if I am the jury, do I behave the same way a jury behaves? Dr. Lloyd told me he did have a brief orientation that morning, but no special training, no real prep for this. Basically, he was just thrown into it. So at Dr. LaPaglia's hearing, he kind of winged it, went with his gut. And he identified with Dr. LaPaglia. Dr. Lloyd is an addiction doctor. He spent two years as Tennessee's opioids are. And also, like LaPaglia, he's in recovery from a pill addiction. And, and so, you know, as they're presenting this, you know, here's this, here's this figure that I don't know the background on that looks pretty sympathetic. He's done the things you need to do. I'm a second-chance guy. He related to Dr. LaPaglia. He'd also made bad decisions while in the throes of a drug addiction. Although, to be clear, LaPaglia testified he was sober at the time he was writing the fraudulent prescriptions and had been for years. I think that I equated, you know, hey, this guy, 
did these things, you know, while I didn't write scripts, I, you know, I stole medication from people, which is, you know, which is bad. And, and I got better and, and, uh, I think he can get better. For Lloyd, LaPaglia said all the right things. He said he was drawn to treating people with addictions to benzos because that's what he was addicted to. He said he took issue with the way addiction clinics were treating patients with benzo addictions, that they weren't giving them enough pills to taper effectively. They were given uh, possibly two weeks' worth of benzodiazepine and then taken off. Okay. And what would happen after they were taken off? Were they just clean of benzos? It's never going to happen. So what would happen? They're going to relapse 100% of the time. I could see Dr. Lloyd nodding along, like, when Dr. LaPaglia was talking about, like, the problem of dual addiction between opiates and benzos and the problem of relapse on benzos. Like, I could see Dr. Lloyd nodding along. What I heard from him is, I've got these patients who are addicted to benzos. These doctors don't know what they're doing trying to get them off. And you actually can't get them off that quick. They'll just relapse. He's exactly right. That's exactly right. After the attorneys were done questioning Dr. LaPaglia, the board members got a turn. Uh, first of all, thanks, Dr. LaPaglia, for coming today and being honest. Here's Dr. Lloyd. So your training addiction is on the job from the folks at Express Correct. and then the eight-hour X-waiver class. Correct. Okay. But most of his questions, he's testing LaPaglia, trying to see if he really understands addiction medicine. Uh can you tell me how you establish a diagnosis of substance use disorder severe? Uh, through discussing, uh, taking a drug history, um, going over medical history with the patient. Okay. And so did you ever uh, in, in, uh, follow the, the criteria of the DSM-5 for substance use disorder and classifications of mild, moderate, and severe? No, we didn't put that in the chart. Okay. And when, when you're trying... By the way, I 100% agree with you about the prevalence of benzos. Um, that's spot on. But when you're when you're treating um, benzodiazepine dependence, what what is your what is your goal? Complete abstinence is the goal. Okay. And and so how do you get there? Extremely slowly. This goes on for several minutes. Dr. Lloyd only asks two questions about the LNB scheme itself. When they finally get to deliberations, Dr. Lloyd speaks first. I'm the newest member of this committee or this board, and I was told that my charge was to protect the health, safety, and welfare of the citizens of the state of Tennessee. And uh, do I believe that 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 taking Dr. Lepaglia's license uh, does that? I, I actually don't. I don't believe that, that, it, that it does that. Um, from what I saw today and and. Uh, you know, hopefully I'm a decent judge of, of somebody's heart. Um, I saw somebody that cares um, about taking good care of a population that struggles to find help. That's what I saw. One aspect and, uh, of these medical board hearings that's very different from a criminal trial. Because of transparency laws in Tennessee, the panel members have to deliberate in the open, in front of Dr. LaPaglia. Rebecca says this is another reason the discipline can be so light. It's really awkward for them, raises some potential issues. Like at one point, while the panel members are considering requiring Dr. LaPaglia to get board certified in addiction medicine, LaPaglia interrupts them, steers them away from it. Do we want to require him to do that? Or, and if he doesn't complete... I respectfully ask no, 
because I may change my mind or something else may happen. Mm-hmm. And if I don't fulfill that requirement, I'm never going to get off probation. The administrative so judge has to break in and tell them to quit talking to each other. In the end, here's what the panel decides. They're going to restore Dr. LaPaglia's medical license, which had been summarily suspended in January when the board first found out about the LMB scheme. As punishment, they give him five years probation, make him report to the Tennessee Medical Foundation, it's a physician's substance abuse group, and they tell him to take a few professional courses. They don't prohibit him from prescribing controlled substances. He still doesn't have a DEA number, so technically he can't anyway. But he could petition the DEA to get it back. They don't restrict that either. It's actually a lighter discipline than what he would have gotten from the plea agreement, the one the board threw out for being too easy on him. So yeah, it was a slap on the wrist. Dr. LaPaglia was all smiles afterwards. So I had chatted with him at the breaks, and um, he was sort of saying, you know, I'm, I'm just hoping to get, get my license back, and I, you know, and I got this federal thing I got to deal with. And so for some reason, they decided to insert this language at the end that says, and, you know, to give him a, full, a, a path back to full licensure. And when they read that out loud, Dr. LaPaglia winked at me, oh. which really surprised me. It just really surprised me. I, I, just, I was like, did that just happen? Well, how and did you interpret his wink? I think that he was sort of saying, like, see, I'm getting what I wanted, I guess. I think it went even better than he expected. And I think that might be why he winked at me. So I went up to him afterwards to talk to him. And by this time, I had chatted with him a couple times. And he said something like, I'm just glad to have my license off of suspension so I can make some money. It was a real kind of 180 from the, like, patient care test testimony that he had just provided. I reached out to Dr. LaPaglia about this, but he didn't get back to me. So here you've got a doctor who lost his DEA number when he was caught with illegal prescription drugs and marijuana at his house in what looked very much like a drug trafficking operation whose medical license was put on probation, who then went out and broke the law again by using another doctor's DEA number to prescribe controlled substances. And now here he is, back on probation with the medical board, still with a medical license, which means he can still work as a doctor. In the years that she's been going to medical board meetings, Rebecca has watched a bunch of doctors with egregious histories keep practicing medicine. Doctors who have committed healthcare fraud, Doctors who prescribe controlled substances for people who aren't their patients. Doctors who have sex with patients. One doctor prescribed large doses of opioids and other drugs, even though the patients had no medical reason for taking them. Prosecutors asked the board to permanently revoke his license, but he was only put on probation. As far as I can tell, Tennessee is fairly typical. A statistical study ranked medical boards on a scale of how harsh to light their discipline was. Tennessee was smack in the middle. Of course, I'm talking about the worst cases the medical board sees. And the board does revoke some doctor's licenses. Since 2017, they've taken 13 licenses away, and 11 doctors have voluntarily surrendered them. That's a significant punishment. As one board member explained to me, a medical license is technically a property right, and it's a big deal to take someone's property from them. But something does seem to be happening, where medical boards, which are set up to protect the public, 
to protect the majority of us who never think to ask whether our doctors are safe and operating in our best interests. Sometimes the medical boards are letting dangerous doctors continue to practice medicine. Like, on the one hand, I I feel like on some level I understand this problem because I've spent so long studying it. I've seen all the angles. I've seen how the personalities play out and the incentives and the emotions and everything. But there's also a way in which I just don't get it. Like, I don't understand why they won't just take the guy's license. What's the part of you that understands it? I think that there's a identification that's not as specific as, oh, that could be me, that's still in play of just being a doctor. Like, this is our calling. We went to similar, through similar sets of trainings. We started out walking down the same path. So I think there is some, like, identification at at a kind of very high professional level. Mm. Like a circling the wagons, you know? Like, we're doctors. And then I think there's also, and this is probably especially bad for doctors, but they're just kind of softies. They just believe that everybody can be healed and can be made better and are sick and deserving of compassion. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's like what's like this really ironic and like sad to me is that it's in some ways this whole problem is created by that like better part of human nature, the part that's full of mercy. Rebecca's solution to this whole thing? Well, I think we need to abolish licensing boards, to be perfectly honest. Instead of having doctors sit in judgment of other doctors, and instead of having them do this as a favor to society every few months, Rebecca says, have full-time employees, whose job it is to regulate the industry, who are trained to notice when they're being affected by the emotional sway of a defendant, and to put their feelings aside as much as possible, like a judge would. Dr. Lloyd agrees with Rebecca, in part. He admits he did relate to LaPaglia, and it influenced how he thought about discipline. If I saw the facts of the case written down on a piece of paper, right, just boom, right down, you know, start to the top, go to the bottom, and I get to read that piece of paper without anybody from either side, right, and I just read that, I'd revoke his license. Just based on the, he used another doctor's DEA license number to prescribe patients. Just, just, just based on flat facts. Uh-huh. Drug charges, used another doctor's DEA license, uh-huh. uh, uh, you know, drug dealing, right? Just, just the plain facts. No, no defense attorney, no prosecutor. I just saw that written down on a piece of paper. No Lapagli in the room. I revoke his license. Hmm. That's so interesting. And and, it, and this is some. Well, it's something I've gained an appreciation for, and and I think and I, I I'm really trying to work on this as a, as a board member. It is very difficult to sit there with another human being in front of you and, you know, what I want to say, drop the hammer. Yeah. Uh, it's a human being, right? It's, it's much easier on a sheet of paper, right? Because when I'm sitting there, I see a guy that's presenting it this way. He doesn't look emaciated. He looks healthy. He's dressed professionally. He's got a child that he has emotion around, like me as a dad. Do I want to give him a chance to get that back? Yeah, I do. But it's not fair to say that's the whole reason the case went askew, that doctors look too kindly on a fellow doctor sitting before them. 
Because when considering what to do with LaPaglia's medical license and whether he should be a practicing doctor, the board members never got a full airing of his past misdeeds. As soon as the hearing was over, Dr. LaPaglia did something that made Dr. Lloyd suspicious. I stood up and, and uh, you know, was headed out and he approached me. And I can't remember his exact words, but it was very placating, almost like, hey, I appreciate what you've done in your own life. I would like to have that, right? That kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And, I knew, and I knew it was bullshit. He felt like he was being manipulated. Something about LaPaglia's affect felt fake. I knew I had made a mistake. My little man inside of me that I use as my barometer, people are like, oh, man, Steve, this guy is a shyster. He kissed my ass, and I couldn't fucking stand it. I'm sorry to cuss, Dean. I'm, no, that's I'm, fine. I couldn't stand it. I couldn't stand it. It, it wore me. That's why I went outside and Googled him. Uh, I said goodbye to everybody. I walked out uh, to my car. I grabbed my phone I, or my truck. I sat there, and I Googled his name. And uh, the first article that popped up in, in the way I searched it uh, was the article uh, about his, uh, his domestic violence. Andrew Kaufman didn't talk about the restraining order against LaPaglia at the trial. It's not a criminal charge. And besides, he said, while it clearly demonstrates bad conduct, it isn't bad conduct related to the practice of medicine. But that's not all he left out. In 2010, while working as an ER doctor, LaPaglia did something that a federal appeals court said, quote, shocks the conscience. The police brought a young man named Felix Booker to the ER. They suspected Booker was hiding drugs on his body, up his butt, to be blunt. Dr. LaPaglia asked Booker to consent to a rectal exam. Booker was naked, except for a blanket, and in handcuffs and leg shackles. He said no. LaPaglia says Booker consented to the exam, but nobody else who was in the room heard this, and there's no medical record of it. LaPaglia tried to examine him. Booker clenched his muscles, so LaPaglia had him sedated. Booker was still able to clench his muscles down, so LaPaglia had him medically paralyzed, intubated him, and did the rectal exam. He found a rock of crack. LaPaglia testified at Booker's trial that he'd done rectal exams on two other people the police had brought into him. A year after that, there was a fourth guy, Wesley Gully. Gully alleged he got the same treatment. LaPaglia asked him to consent to a rectal exam. He said no. LaPaglia threatened to sedate him and paralyze him, so he relented. LaPaglia did the rectal exam and found nothing. The police charged Gully with resisting arrest. The hospital charged him for the rectal exam. But apparently nothing ever happened to Dr. LaPaglia. He wasn't criminally charged for the warrantless no-consent rectal searches. He didn't even lose his job with the hospital. The searches were reported to the Department of Health, but Dr. LaPaglia was not disciplined for them. And in a cruel regulatory irony, because he was not disciplined, there's no public record of why the board did not discipline him. Dr. Lloyd actually found out about the rectal searches from Rebecca. They had coffee a few weeks after Dr. LaPaglia's hearing. I mean, that's bringing up emotions right now. I can't even... That's somebody who's taken advantage of their position of power. That's, that's not forgivable. Maybe God could forgive him. I, I can't. I can tell you this. If he paralyzed my son in the ER, I'd have fucking killed him. Yeah. I mean, I would have. I would have went after him. I don't care. They just said, you know, well, you're going to, you, you know, you'll pay consequences this day. Fine. He paralyzed him. He, he paralyzed his muscles. 
against his against his consent. The guy did not yeah. give consent for that. Yeah, he had to be intubated. Yep. I mean, he couldn't even breathe on his can. own. No, no, you, you can't. I mean, you, you paralyze all muscles, and your diaphragm's a muscle. Right. So you're not going to be able to breathe. Right. Yeah. And that's that's somebody who will do anything. That's just incomprehensible to me. Dr. Lloyd and the other board members on LaPaglia's panel, all they knew was that LaPaglia had been on probation with the board once before for charges related to his personal drug use, that he'd been treated for a pill addiction and had stayed sober all these years, and that he and Dr. Brooks got caught selling prescriptions using Dr. Brooks's DEA number, which is a way tidier story than the one I just told you. But Kaufman didn't talk about the rectal searches at Dr. LaPaglia's hearing because of the rules of evidence, he told me. It wouldn't have been admissible. Same for the details about the 2014 drug charges. Which, by the way, after LaPaglia pled no contest, he was put into something called judicial diversion. It's a kind of probation. And eventually the case was dismissed. But more importantly, Kaufman said this wasn't a hearing about everything LaPaglia had ever done. Just this one crime, the fraudulent prescriptions. Dr. Lloyd didn't learn about the rest of it until it was too late. When I'm looking at him up there, I mean, looked like he was doing what he was supposed to be doing. He was trying his best. Sure, that's what I felt. And I think I am a good judge of that, given all the facts. Yeah. But I didn't have, a, I didn't have all the facts. How many strikes do I believe that somebody gets, Dina? Many as they need. In the real world, there's no such thing as the third strike to me. But this is not the real world. You have a professional medical license and you can harm others. There is a strike limit there. Dr. Lloyd says he asks a lot more questions now during these cases. So how to keep this from happening? How to make sure the board gets a full picture of a doctor's career and past misdeeds before they decide how to discipline them? Rebecca points to a simple and practical solution. Separate the disciplinary hearing into two parts. Have one hearing where the board hears evidence and decides if a doctor is guilty of the charges, and another hearing where the doctor is disciplined. And at that point, they can learn other information about a defendant's past, both good and bad. That's how criminal courts work. Once the jury has determined a person's guilt, the judge is the one who does the sentencing and gets to hear more about the defendant. This solution, Rebecca points out, has the benefit of being readily available to the board. It's already legal under Tennessee law. Last September, the medical board members and staff had an off-site retreat. Rebecca was there. She recorded it for her notes, for her book on licensing boards. And one of the things they discussed was Dr. LaPaglia's case, what had gone wrong. Dr. Lloyd was still upset about it. Dr. LaPaglia is a practicing doctor in Tennessee right now. He does house calls for $50 cash. And Lloyd explained what he sees as the real problem with that kind of outcome, with this halfway discipline they gave LaPaglia. They've made it so he can't get a job at a hospital or a medical clinic, but he can still see patients. Dr. Lloyd said, quote, he can only work in a cash-based practice, and so the most vulnerable Tennesseans are the ones at risk. And that's not awesome, because the very population that I work personally with on a daily basis, I just put somebody back out there, and I'm struggling with that. Dana Chivas is one of the producers of our program. Rebecca Allensworth wrote about medical boards and Dr. Lepaglia's case for the New York Review of Books. 
a pub or a small hotel. You need a license for all you sell. <laughs> you may think I'm romancing, but they even tax you for singing and dancing. You need a license, whatever you do. One or two things they've exempted, it's true. Lumbago the gout or a touch of the flu. You don't need a license for that. Now I've got a license for chicken. Our program was produced today by Sean Cole. The people who put our program together today includes Bim Adewunmi, Alma Baker, Susan Burton, Ben Calhoun, Dana Chivas, Aviva de Kornfeld, Hilary Elkins, Norgill, Damian Grafe, Mickey Meek, Stowe Nelson, Catherine Raimondo, Nadia Raymond, Robin Semyon, Lily Sullivan, Christopher Sertala, Matt Tierney, Julie Whitaker, and Diane Wu. Our managing editor, Sarah Abdurrahman, senior editor, David Kestenbaum, our executive editor, Emmanuel Berry. Special thanks today to Wendy Helgeson, Reed Magney, Scott McDonald, and Jacob Elberg. Our website, thisamericanlife.org, where you can stream our archive of over 700 episodes for absolutely free. Plus, there's videos, there's lists of favorite programs, there's tons of other stuff on there, too. Again, that website, thisamericanlife.org. This American Life is delivered to public radio stations by PRX, the public radio exchange. Thanks, as always, to our program's co-founder, Mr. Tori Malatia. He and his wife are finally taking their first vacation since quarantine. I think they're going to have a good time. He read me their packing list. 45 quart-sized mason jars, which contained marijuana. 127 glass pipes used to smoke marijuana. Glock 19 9mm. I'm Ira Glass. Back next week with more stories of This American Life. Fishing at Richmond is licensed by law. A chap to his girl said, now you hold your jaw. <laughs> you know exactly what I'm fishing for. And I don't need a license for that, no, sir. I don't need a license for that.